It's good to be with you today. I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity and the privilege to share with you this morning. Um, as, as John said, I do have four children and one grandson. And so, um, yes, we are very tired <laughs> quite often. Um, but uh, but it's, it's good. Things are going well. Mom and baby are healthy, so we, we can't ask for too much more there. But uh, uh, I like to tell stories. When I go to other churches, I like to tell stories about my kids because they're generally not in the room. And that way I don't get in too much trouble for embarrassing them, right? And so uh, I want to tell you a story about my five-year-old. He's our youngest. He's our, uh, John didn't say it, but my older three are adopted, and then my youngest is is biological. And so um, my youngest son, my five-year-old, a couple weeks ago, we were, uh, I was attempting to get him to put his socks and shoes on, right? And so as you parents in the room know, this can also be a wrestling match, right? So, So there I am trying to get him to put his socks and shoes on. We're trying to get out the door. As you know, parents are typically in that rush, and uh, and in the midst of the wrestling and the giggles and the laughing and all the squeals and all the noise, um, a toy comes flying past my head, right? Which is which is normal. My my five year old is pretty kind of rough and tumble wrestler kind of guy. Like it's it's not unusual for him to randomly jump off a piece of furniture onto the back of my head or things like that, right? That's just his normal. Um, so here we are. This toy comes flying past my head and gets lodged behind a bookcase in his bedroom. And so I'm like, all right, we're done. <laughs> we're not throwing toys anymore. So we get his socks and shoes at night, and I go get my own on. A couple minutes later, he walks out into the living room in just utter devastation, tears flowing and everything. I said, buddy, like, what? What's going on? He said, my toy, my transformer, isn't, hold on to that, my transformer, it's gone. I said, buddy, we'll just, we're going to get it when we come home. No big deal. We'll get it when we come home. Not satisfied. Tears. And he just crumbles into my lap. I said, well, let me, let me step back and tell you this. So when I say it's a transformer, let me explain to you what that means, right? So, when we talk about transformers in our house, there's, it's not just sort of a prized toy, it's an obsession, <laughs> right? So, so from an early age, he found, he went into, a, into the crawl space one time, found some, a box of old things from like my childhood, and in it were some transformers. I mean, these toys were like, the plastic had yellowed, like they were old, old toys, right? And from that point forward, he thinks of nothing else but transformers. This is to the point, right? So he, um, so he thinks of transformers so much, he outperforms most adults in transforming these toys, right? So if you don't know what a transformer is, it's, it's a robot that can change into a vehicle that can be changed back into a robot, right? Like they transform. And so he can outdo most adults when it comes to transforming these toys. He knows more transformers than like any other person I know on planet Earth, like just from memory. He knows their name, their colors, what they do. He knows everything. But this will really tell you. So there was a phase, and we're just coming out of it, for about a year where he literally would just transform regardless of where we were. So whether we were in the grocery store or at a restaurant or at church or at home, he would randomly drop onto the ground and transform into something. And we would have to figure out what he was because he wouldn't respond to us otherwise. Right? He would totally ignore us until we responded like, and realized he was like an airplane or a tank or a car or a pickup truck, whatever he was. And he would just do this. He would do it at the babysitter's. He did it to anyone and everyone without, without sort of prejudice, right? So when I say it was like this toy that threw over my shoulder, I think it was aimed at my head, but he missed. Um, when it disappeared, it was like his everything. 
total devastation. Now, you might realize that, uh, that certainly my suggestion that we wait till we come back home did not go over well. <laughs> that was unacceptable. So I asked him, do you, want, do you want to go find it? Of course he said yes, right? And so then I asked him again, well, should we move the bookcase? Flew over here, should we move the bookcase? Yes. I said, well, can you reach the toy? I moved the bookcase out. Can you reach the toy? No, I can't see it, he says. So I grab a flashlight. Turn the flashlight on. Shine it down behind the bookcase. Can you see it? Yeah. Can you get it? Yes. So he gets it, right? The little ant come back, but he gets his toy back. We push the bookcase back. We get out the door a few minutes later than we expected. But everything's okay. If I can venture opinion, share an opinion with you, um, it's not terribly scriptural, but if I can share an opinion, I kind of feel like we're living in a world of five-year-olds who have lost their toy behind a bookcase. And here's how we know that, right? Because we know that because the levels of anxiety and fear and even things like suicide rates and everything else are just have exponentially grown in the last couple of years. I don't have to explain to you why, right? We all know why. We've lived through it. <laughs> but it's like, we, if you can accept the sarcasm, like we live in a world of five-year-olds who've lost their toys behind a bookcase. So much of the world, and when, when we talk about sort of the fear and the anxiety and all those hard feelings that go with that stuff, when we talk about how that feels, and that when we see it on sort of our whatever news station we watch, whichever side you're on, right? Like whatever station you're watching, and all the fear and worry that they keep pushing towards us. When we hear that stuff, those are all symptoms. See, fear isn't the actual problem. Anxiety is not the actual problem. Those are symptoms of something that's deeper, that's deeper at work and something that's more uh, uncertain. Things like fear and anxiety make us ask questions like, am I really loved? Does somebody really care about me? Am I known? Having a new infant in the house, we're in that stage where the baby's just starting to be able to actually like, see you, Right? His vision's just starting to develop and he can track with noise, he can track with a face. And even in his young infant age, without even words or vocabulary, he's looking around and he screams, is someone paying attention to me? Are we known? Are we loved? And there's a sense of, there's a sense of uncertainty that undergirds all of it. There's a sense that like the world is just an uncertain place now. There's a sense that it didn't feel that way before, did it? If this was five years ago, we wouldn't be asking these questions. But here we are today, and these are the things we ask. These are the things we feel. So here's the question I have for you today. <laughs> In a world where everything feels so uncertain and so unsure, right? and then that produces this anxiety and these fears and these questions of like, does somebody really love me? Is somebody really paying attention? Do I really matter? Do I have purpose? In that kind of world, how do we share something that is so certain as our faith in Jesus? How do you do that? Because here's the reality. If, if we're sticking with this five-year-old metaphor, right, with toys behind a bookcase, if we're sticking with that, a simple statement of truth doesn't matter, does it? I can tell my five-year-old the toys behind the bookcase will get it later, but it doesn't matter. 
Because he's so uncertain that he has lost it forever that he can't hear anything else. And in a world that's so uncertain, a statement of truth, no matter how true it is, right? Like that doesn't matter to people because it doesn't feel like it solves the issue. So again, how do you, in a world that is so uncertain, in a world like this that we live in, how do we help people discover Jesus? Who we, who we say is certain, right? Our faith is certain. Salvation can be certain. Like We can say all these things, but yet, how do you do that in a world that doesn't believe you? The reason I decided to ask my son a series of questions... Instead of just going and getting the toy myself. The easy thing would have been like, move the bookcase, here's your toy, quiet down. <laughs> right? Get out the door. Sometimes as parents we do that anyway, right? But the reason I asked him questions, the reason I, I, I poked him and prodded him, is because I wanted him to see like, hey, listen, in the midst of your uncertainty, in the midst of like sort of your worst moment, you shouldn't be paralyzed by this. There is something better. There's a way out of this. There's, there's more to this picture than what you're seeing. But most importantly, I kind of knew that in order for him to understand that a toy behind the bookcase didn't disappear forever, he had to discover that himself. I couldn't just tell him. I couldn't say, this is true. It was. But I couldn't just tell him and make that five-year-old believe it. I had to help him discover it. And to help him find it himself. Because then, then he'd believe. Then he knew from this point forward, anytime a toy goes behind the bookcase, well, I know where it is. I don't have to worry. And I kind of feel like, if we're sticking with this metaphor, I kind of feel like this is kind of how the world works. We, we have to work to help them discover. We have to help people discover for themselves, in their own situations, in their own context, with all of the pressure and everything else that's going on in their life. They have to discover Jesus themselves. It's not something that we can just tell them, as true as it might be. We have to help them discover. So let me let me show you how this works. Um, there's a story in Scripture they think helps us do that. Uh, so if you have a Bible near you, I, I would love you to join with me um, in, in turning or swiping or tapping your way, however you have your Bible. Um, we'll be in, in the book of John, uh, chapter 4. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard this story many times over. And so I'm not going to read all of it to you or read through the whole thing with you. But, uh, but I'd like to take a look at a couple things in this story. It's that story of Jesus meeting this woman at a well. So again, John chapter 4, and we're going to dive in right at verse 7. So after a long journey, Jesus had stopped at a well. The disciples went into town to get food, and Jesus meets this woman at the well. And says this, verse 7, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? If you don't know the story well, let me give you just a tiny bit of context. Uh, first, there's, there's simply no way this conversation should have ever happened. Jesus is a Jew. She's a Samaritan woman. And that literally means culturally, religiously, politically, like in every sense, Gender-based, all the norms in that day said these two things shouldn't, these two people shouldn't be meeting and talking. It was actually against the rules for both of them to talk to each other. So there's no way this is supposed to happen. And, and mind you, this woman shows up at the hottest part of the day at noon, 
to go get water when realistically no one else would be doing that work? Who wants to work in the hottest part of the day in the middle of the desert, right? Like, who wants to do that? Nobody. So she chooses that time when nobody would be there. It's on purpose. She's trying to avoid people. But there's Jesus, right? And so whatever her reasons, she's there, he's there, and he says, can you give me a drink? And so it's not the content of the question. It's not actually the water that's important here, right? We all know that. I'm sure they're both thirsty. But it's not the water. It's the effect of the question. It's the impact the question has. So think about this. Jesus asked, can you give me water in a situation that rightfully he's not supposed to be talking to her and she's not talk, supposed to talk to him. And so there's this moment where this question brings up all this possibility. It's like Jesus is trying to open the door to something greater. So by asking, can you give me water? In effect, Jesus is really asking a very deep, deep, but revolutionary and, and life-changing question. Why? Why aren't we allowed to talk? Why wouldn't we simply just give each other water? Does that make sense? Like, isn't that the good human thing to do? Who said, like, why, why do we have to have these things that keep us divided? Who said that's the reason we don't talk to each other? Why can't we just talk? Why does it have to be this way? So I imagine in that moment, there's this, there's this thing going on in her head. This guy who's not supposed to talk to her starts talking to her. And in the same moment, there's this sort of like rush of like energy and excitement, while at the same time, utter fear. It'd be terrifying for her to hear this man who's not supposed to talk to her talk to her. What could happen? What might happen if this conversation continues? So would she find herself more ostracized by our community? I mean, think about it. She has to go back to town. She's already kind of like a social pariah there. If you don't, don't know the backstory, I mean, remember, this is a woman who's had multiple different relationships, multiple different husbands. For whatever reason, we don't know. Whether she's just being kicked out, passed on, or whether they keep dying off on her. Like, who knows why she has so many husbands? But whatever the reason, it's not good. You don't have five husbands for good reasons. Right? And that's the unfortunate role of her situation. She's in a bad situation. More than likely, she's been more abused than not. Because that would fit with the culture and the norms. And so here she is doing this thing that she's this thing that she's not allowed to do. What's gonna happen if this continues? What happens if the news gets back to town? Would her town reject her more? Even if that's possible? But here's the other side of it, is that there's a chance that something really good could come from this. So here she is. And listen to her response, right? This is her response now in verse 9. She says, but you're a Jew. <laughs> you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Can you just feel the anxiety in her statement? I mean, it's a good question, right? Like, wait a second, how can this be possible? But at the same time, she's going, it's very defensive and very deflective in life. She's going, you just stay over there. <laughs> Don't you come closer. Either physically or even emotionally, you just stay. And embedded in her question, built into her question is the sense of like, 
depending on your translation, others say she's a woman of Samaria. She's a woman of. And what that, what that really means is that all the stereotypes of people from Samaria, she checks the boxes, right? She's sort of a, a half-breed, if you would. A blending of Jews and Gentiles. That's what Samaritans were. So she doesn't fit sort of in either crowd. They don't fit anywhere. They're the kind of people that most people, when they have to travel through this region of the country, they travel around. They just literally don't even go through Samaria. That's weird to do that. Most people go around. That's how sort of like unwanted these, this people group was. So she's a woman of Samaria. And so as, as sort of this conversation unfolds and as, as suddenly sort of the excitement maybe starts to fade, <clears throat> she's constantly pushing back and going, whatever it is that you are implying, Jesus, whatever it is that you think is going on here, it doesn't happen with people like me. That's not who I am. I'm a woman of Samaria. But Jesus is in face, <laughs> Right? And so on and on they go. He keeps poking and prodding, keeps asking, he keeps making statements, and she keeps pushing back. It's almost as if you hear Jesus kind of just going, well, what if? What if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you? What if you could never be thirsty again? What if your relationships weren't so broken? What if you understood the God you keep saying you know? What if? And with each round and with each sort of back and forth, uh, her guard drops a little bit. And the idea that life could be different becomes a little bit more clear. And then there's the twist in the story. If you know the story well, the disciples had already left, right? Remember, they went to town to get food. And just as the conversation is finishing up, here come the disciples. Now, um, if you remember the very beginning of the story, we skipped this part, but in the very beginning... We're told by John, the author of the gospel, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And so it says he had to go through, but it's almost like he's compelled and almost forced to go through. He has to. There's not an option. The beginning story, we don't know why, right? In the very beginning, we just think, well, I guess he's got to go. The Spirit's guiding him through, so he just follows. And I don't, I, I mean, I don't know, and I don't think we'll ever know. Did Jesus actually go because he knew that woman would be at that well? We don't know. What we do know is the Spirit said, go through when everyone else goes around. That's important. So here's, here's the reality, right? So I'll give you a little snippet. So what happens is that Jesus goes through, meets the woman at the well. The woman then takes the gospel back to her own household. The household then learns faith in Jesus and tells the whole town. whole town comes to meet Jesus. whole town gets changed. But then fast forward to the book of Acts, and Philip's coming back to Samaria and seeing that the church is growing in Samaria because Jesus talked to this one woman. That's the progression. Now, Jesus brought the disciples here too. And here they come back into the story, right? It's easy for them to get lost in this because they're really just sort of a, a tag along to the plot. <laughs> but there's something important. There's a contrast that I need you to notice today in the way that Jesus approaches this woman versus the way the disciples do. 
See, when the disciples encounter this woman, they're kind of crossing paths, right? She's heading back to town. They're heading to the well. They cross paths. And they start to ask questions in their mind. They don't say it out loud, but they're asking questions in their mind like, why is Jesus talking to her? Right? What what does he have to do with her? Why is she even here? Almost like she doesn't belong. Yep, she's from Samaria. They don't belong. And so here's the thing. We might look at this and go, wow, that's really judgmental, but it wasn't for them. Back then it wasn't. They were acting on what was normal to them. They were doing what was normal, what they thought was certain. So that's what we do often, isn't it? We would rather live in certainty. We'd rather just live out of certainty because it's easier. We know this thing, so this is what we do. That's the disciples here. They're acting in certainty. So they don't need to really think too hard because, well, she's a woman of Samaria, so she checks the boxes, so we judge her this way. Because it's certain, it's easy. And then there's Jesus, who's more comfortable sitting with this woman in the uncertainty of all the mess that she lives in. Because her life is anything but certain. She's been through multiple husbands. There's no stability in her home. There's no certainty in her home. There's no certainty of her faith. Right? If we notice the conversation she has with Jesus, he's like, well, we're supposed to go over here to this mountain, I think. And she's just like, well, it's not really about the mountain. Right? Like, she doesn't even understand her own faith. She doesn't have stability in her home. There's nothing about her world that's certain. Nothing. And so it's this contrast of the disciples who just live in this certainty of like, this is a woman of Samaria, this is the way we treat her, this is the way we talk to her, this is the way we ignore her. Versus Jesus who goes, we have to sit in the uncertainty with her. And so here's what I think is really happening in this story and why I think it's really important for us in a world that is so uncertain. This story isn't prescriptive. It's not, it's not saying this is how you must do this thing. Okay? But it is descriptive. It's sort of a, a lens that we can see that describes sort of this is how you live in an uncertain time and space. It's often neglected, uh, but it's probably the most impart, important part of the story. It's that long before there were ever conversations about Jesus, there were conversations with Jesus. Like I know that I know that for the most part, all of us as Christians, and I, I was grown up doing this too. Like we we're supposed to pray for specific people, right? We're supposed to pray about this person coming to know Jesus. And I'm not. Hold on, I'm not telling you not to do that, <laughs> right? Keep doing that. But what I am telling you that maybe you need to start thinking about doing is that in an uncertain world, maybe it's less about praying for one specific person, saying, "God, where's the person I'm supposed to talk to." Who's the person you're bringing across my path? Who's my woman at the well? Because if we, if we really understand this story, this story started way before the well. <laughs> it started long before the, they met up at the well. It started because Jesus was aware of what the Spirit wanted him to do, and the Spirit compelled him. It made him go through Samaria. Not around, right? But through when everyone else wanted to go around, and everyone else would, and not a single person would blame anyone for doing it. 
And so I wonder if maybe our prayer time, and maybe when we're praying for salvation, maybe we're praying for people to be healed, right? We're praying for people to, to discover Jesus. Maybe it begins with us just simply saying, God, guide me today. Like, who is the person today that I'm to talk to? Who is it today? Is it someone in my house? <laughs> is it someone at my work? Is it the gas station person? Is it some some mom having a really hard time in the grocery store with their kid who keeps transforming on the floor? <laughs> Who's the person? Because the truth of what the truth of this story is that it's it wasn't Jesus that transformed that town. You with me? Jesus empowered that woman to be the catalyst for change in that whole town. So we call a person of peace. It's what Luke calls a person of peace. But this is the reality: is that you don't know. How important that random person you might be talking to is. Because they could be connected to a whole network, a whole town of people, so to speak, that come to discover Jesus because you just simply shared Jesus with that person in that moment because the Spirit nudged you to do so. So if we're gonna if we're gonna look at this story as sort of helping us understand our our current situation, it begins simply with this: we allow the Spirit to nudge us and nudge us through places like Samaria, the places that we don't really want to go, the places we might rather avoid. We allow the Spirit to just simply lead us and nudge us in the right direction. So if that's happening. If we're praying for the Spirit's lead and and we're doing our best to follow, right? Opportunities to help others discover Jesus will come. But they'll come in the church like this. But I happen to think they're going to come more often outside of this. Now think about this, right? Hold on, think about this. I know that our traditionally, like, we want to gather people together and that this is important. The role of our worship times and whether we do small groups or Sunday school or things like that after, those are still, those are important. I'm not pulling those out. What I'm saying to you, though, is that uncertain people aren't going to step in here because this isn't certain for them either. Why would an uncertain person come into a room full of strangers when they're already feeling uncertain? Who subjects themselves to that kind of stuff? And so my encouragement to you is to realize that that so much of ministry, so much of disciple-making, so much of the Great Commission is going to happen outside of the walls of this building. Because that's where the people are at the moment. And like moving a bookcase out so I can shine a flashlight down behind it so my son can find a toy, that's what you and I have to realize we're doing. Because uncertain people aren't going to hear you tell them the truth. You might need to at a later point. Your story, your story of faith will matter at a different point. Absolutely. Your, your beliefs about truth and grace and explanations of those things, those things will matter, absolutely. They just don't matter first. They just aren't the most important thing first. Because if we look at the biblical record, it's not just the woman in Samaria. It's Zacchaeus, right? It's Matthew. It's Paul. I mean, 
how many other people, the Roman centurion, how many, how many people in scripture that Jesus interacted with that came to discover Jesus, how many of them happened in a former religious setting? I'd venture to say few to none. But we continue to, as a church, we continue to operate in a way that we think, well, we've got to bring them here first. And the first thing is not here. Here's a part of this, right? Here's a part of their discipleship. Here's part of following Jesus. And an important part. It's just not the first part. Not in an uncertain world. In a certain world, it is. <laughs> if this is a different generation, a different time, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. But because we are now in a world that we are in, the first step is not sort of make them in the building. The first step is sitting down and having conversation with them wherever they are. So, we're trusting the Spirit to guide us. We're recognizing that opportunities occur outside the church often, inside the church some, right? Then how do we do this? <laughs> How do we actually begin to help people discover Jesus? And I tell you this, it's, it's not about you teaching or telling. If you notice, Jesus does make some statements of sort of, of faith statements in this conversation, but he asked a whole lot more questions than anything else. And if you look at throughout the biblical record, right, Jesus asks far more questions than he ever answers. Because a good question can illuminate the darkness in someone's world. A good question to say, well, why does it have to be that way? What if there's a different way? Now, how do we go about doing that? Right? Like, simple questions. Why and what and how can be life-changing for people. Because sometimes when you're so uncertain, you stop looking around because you can't get out of your own fear and anxiety. Someone can step in from the outside and say, there is a different way. There's a different way here. So asking questions, again, as primary, as first, takes that role before we start to tell them our stories or our faith or give them truth or give them doctrine. All of those things matter and will matter. But there's an order here. And Jesus seems to model that the order comes first with just questions and comes with relationship. And as that the questions deepen and as the relationship deepens, the door opens for us to tell our stories. The door opens for us to talk doctrine. The door opens for us to move deeper into understanding who God is. But if you notice this story, if you notice what happens, Jesus doesn't wait to help her understand everything perfectly. He sends her out as an evangelist for the gospel before she really has any clue which way is up. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take time to disciple people. Jesus took three years with the disciples, didn't he? To really teach them the way. What I'm advocating is that we don't waste time saying, no, 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 wait. Don't go tell people yet. You're not trained enough yet. You don't know enough yet. You don't understand yet. Jesus says, listen, you met me, you believe in me, you go tell people. And again, if we look through the biblical record, 
She's not the only one. So what I'm encouraging you today to think about is simply this. We live in an uncertain world. Again, we know the factors. We know the reasons. We, we see it on the news all the time. I don't need to waste breath on that. But we live in an uncertain world, and that means that things like fear and anxiety run rampant. In our schools, in our kids. And just over the pandemic, the number of suicides for young teenage girls, especially junior high, has skyrocketed. That's the world we're in. It requires us to be more sensitive, more understanding of how the Spirit's moving and how the Spirit's nudging. It requires us to not just go in armed with truth, to sort of demand that people believe the truth because it's the truth. Because if anything, we've learned that that's, that is a very questionable statement, isn't it? At least politically and things like that, Right? People don't have reason to believe you just because you say it's true. But if we're sensitive to the nudge of the Spirit, conversations will open. It may take much longer than one conversation like Jesus has with this woman. Jesus seems to be a little more gifted than than the rest of us. (laughs) I can tell you that there's... If we had a whole other time, I'd share a whole other message with you about about how we can see that the Lord is moving in someone's life. How we can see from the, the ways that the conversations we're having. Because there's a progression that happens when you start to notice the Spirit's work that we can pay attention to. An uncertain world requires us to live differently in it. And while you and I might feel certain, while you and I might not have that fear and anxiety, while you might, might not have those questions, there's a good chance everyone else around you does. I can tell you this, our high schools and our middle schools are filled with it. So if we have any hope of helping people discover Jesus, we have to do it in a way that honors scripture, honors what Jesus says, and honors the fact that we live in an uncertain world. It's a different kind of place. So I... I, I want to pray over you and invite you to to ask the Spirit to be your guide. That's the first step. (laughs) And if you bumble through the rest and stumble through the rest, that's okay. (laughs) We all have to figure it out. But if nothing else, I really, really press upon you the, the necessity for us to just be nudged and guided by the Spirit each and every step to the right people, at the right time, at the right wells, with the right Samaritans. Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful that for the opportunity to share again about uh, how your spirit works in and amongst us. I'm grateful that, uh, that even in uncertain times like this, you continue to work and continue to move and your grace is still evident. God, I want to lift up this congregation here at New Beginnings and ask that you would you would speak into their hearts and their minds and nudge them in the right directions. I know they all have burdens for people in their lives. And so I pray that you would help them to see when conversations are opening up. When your spirit has moved one person to them and, and them to the other person, when your spirit has moved people together, I pray that you give them the courage 
and the wisdom to converse and talk about you. To help other people discover you. Because God, this world is so uncertain right now. And so scared. We're grateful that we have the blessing of knowing you. Knowing the certainty of salvation. Knowing the certainty of, of your grace and your forgiveness. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to really grasp that. And that it would propel us into this uncertain world. It would move us through some areas in this world. Not to avoid them, but to go through. So guide us, Jesus. Guide us on the way you want us to go. May it all be for your glory. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.